Today's reading is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Ian McCormick was 20 years old. He was from New Zealand, and he was in search of the perfect wave and the perfect high and the perfect girl, and he was living the surfer's life in search of pleasure. And one night, he was scuba diving in the Indian Ocean and was stung four times by a school of box jellyfish. Now, just one of those stings is life-threatening. He was stung four times. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in an ambulance on the way to the hospital, and his life began to vividly replay before his eyes. He said, I wondered what would happen if I died. And then when I thought that, I saw a clear vision of my mom saying this, Ian, no matter how far from God you are, just cry out to God and he will hear you. He will forgive you. Now, by that time in my life, I had become a devout atheist, and yet I was confronted with this vision from my mother. I didn't know whom to pray to, even if I wanted to pray. Should I pray to Buddha, Kali, Shiva? My mother followed Jesus Christ. And as I was wondering what I should pray, the Lord's prayer that she taught me when I was a kid came to mind. Not all of it, just lines at a time. Forgive us our sins came to his mind. And he said, Lord, I've done so many things wrong. I don't know how you can forgive me, but please do. Please forgive me. And the next line he remembered, as we forgive those who sinned against us. And Ian realized that in order for God to forgive him, he would also have to forgive other people. And so line by line, as he could remember them, he prayed through the Lord's prayer and then he died slipped away. And at first, Ian found himself fully alive and yet in utter darkness that absolutely terrified him. And we're going to talk about these NDEs specifically next week. Uh, Come back and we'll talk about the 23% of NDE that are negative. Um, But Ian describes what happened next when he was in this darkness that terrified him. I was weeping by now, and I cried out to God, why am I here? I asked you for for forgiveness. Why am I here? And then a brilliant light shone upon me and literally drew me out of the darkness. It was unspeakably bright as if it was the center of the universe. It was more brilliant than the sun, yet you could look right into it. The light wasn't just material in nature, but it was a living light that transmitted emotion and it filled me with a sense of love and acceptance. I was standing before this source of light and power and it looked like a white fire or a mountain cut out of diamond sparkling 
with the most indescribable brilliance. And as I stood there, questions began racing in my mind. Is this just a force, as the Buddhists say? Or is this some sort of karma? Is this some sort of yin and yang? Could there actually be some person in this light? And as I thought these thoughts, a voice came from inside the light. And it said this, If you wish to return, you must see in a new light. And the moment I heard those words, something clicked, he said. I remembered a Christmas card that I had once seen. And on the Christmas card, I remember what was written on it. Jesus is the light of the world. And also this line, God is light and there is no darkness in him. And so I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was God. He is light. He knew my name. He knew the secret thoughts of my heart and mind. He Ian will later say, you can put masks on in front of other people, but you can't wear a mask before God. He knows everything. He said, I felt ashamed. I felt undone. And my first thought was, this light is surely going to cast me back into the darkness where I really belong. But to his amazement, a wave of pure, unconditional love flowed over him. He says, it was the last thing I expected. I expected judgment, but instead of judgment, I was being washed with pure love. Pure, unadulterated, clean, uninhibited, undeserved love. I found myself beginning to weep uncontrollably as the love became stronger and stronger. Because standing in the middle of this dazzling light was a man with white robes reaching down to his ankles. And I could see his bare feet. The garments were not man-made fabrics, but were like garments of light. And as I lifted up my eyes, I could see the chest of a man with his arms outstretched as if to welcome me. I looked towards his face. It was so bright, I couldn't make out the features on his face. I knew I was standing in the presence of Almighty God because no one but God could look like this. We are in the fourth week of a series called Imagine Heaven, and we are basing this series on a book by that same name, by John Burke, who has uh, studied near-death accounts of almost a 1,000 people. He includes about 120 of them in his book. These are people who have died, who have been resuscitated, uh, sometimes after lots of minutes or even hours, and they live again, and they have had a glimpse of the afterlife, and they come back to tell amazing stories. And if you've missed some of the weeks leading up to this, uh, just go to cccfortscott.com slash messages, and you can catch up to where we are. Today, we talk about one of the most common elements of all NDEs, and that is this idea that they all seem to meet this divine being who is light and love. And what is amazing is that it, it happens around the globe. It doesn't matter where people have come from, who they are, they describe this same being that they know to be God. They consistently say, of all the things that I saw, that was the highlight. He is the highlight of heaven. Last week, we talked about all the beauty that we can expect in heaven. And that's a fun uh, conversation to have. You talk about uh, all of the beauty and wonder and colors and mountains and valleys and animals, dogs, not cats, right? We decided that last week. Uh, Architecture, seasons, loving reunions with family and friends, all the awesome stuff in heaven. But in these accounts, it's not all of those things that are mentioned primarily. It's this being who is God himself because nothing 
None of the other beauty compares to the presence of God. Now, some, some would say, okay, hold on. People who have these experiences are just seeing what they've been religiously programmed to see. And so if you're a Christian, you're going to see an angel, you're going to see Jesus, you're going to be seeing God. If you're a Hindu, then you're going to see Krishna or Siva or Deva. The problem with that theory is that John Burke writes this, though I have heard researchers state conclusions like this, I have never read of indie ears describing anything like Krishna who has blue skin or Siva who has three eyes or the dissolution of the individual self and the impersonal Brahma because that's the ultimate Hindu reality. That's what you're aiming for if you're Hindu. While their interpretations might differ, what they describe across cultures is this man of light they know to be God. And the characteristics that when they start describing this man of light are amazingly consistent with what the Old Testament prophets have told us all along and what Jesus himself teaches us and then what Jesus' disciples say of Jesus after they saw him ascend to heaven. And so let's talk about this being of light. And I will remind you once again that we should never take a few stories and develop our theology of the afterlife. Let's start with Scripture, okay? Let's always make sure we're grounded in Scripture. And yet, these stories can fill in some gaps for us and really help us think through the truth that the Scripture gives us. And so, I'm reminded of Crystal, who before her NDE had the same questions we all have of God. If I ever get face-to-face with God, I'm going to ask him this and this and this. You probably have those thousand questions. And she had those questions. But When she died and she met God, the only question that she could muster was this, why didn't I love you more? Why didn't I love you more while I was alive? And so as we talk about this being of light today, I just want you to ask yourself, am I wholeheartedly seeking to know and to love this God of the universe and to follow him? Three common characteristics um, that people use to describe this being that they meet. Number one, and I'm going to use God and Jesus because we know who this is, right? God and Jesus is love and light. God is light, love and light. Jesus is love and light. That's the first thing every ear experiences. There are two researchers who studied 500 Americans and also 500 Indians to determine how much religious or cultural conditioning shaped one's near-death experience. And they, they write this, several basic Hindu ideas of the afterlife were never portrayed in the visions of the Indian patients. The various Vedic loci of an afterlife, uh, otherwise a Hindu, Hindu heaven, were never mentioned. Nor were reincarnation and the dissolution in Brahma. Again, that's what every Hindu is after. That's their kind of heaven. The concept of karma, the accumulation of merits and demerits, may have been vaguely suggested by reports of a white-robed man with a book of accounts. Does that ring a bell? A white-robed man with a book of accounts. That's not Hindu. That's, that's biblical. The prophets have been telling us that. That's the description that ancient Jewish prophets and the disciples of Jesus give of God. God appeared as a brilliant light to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. He had to cover Moses' eyes so he wouldn't be dead, right? And that was 1500 BC. The Jewish prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of heaven. 
He writes this, that high above the throne was a figure like that of a man I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, that he glowed, he he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel wrote that in 600 BC. The Jewish prophets saw this man of brilliant light. Daniel is another prophet that saw this. He saw God and he saw the Messiah. He saw something like a son of man. He writes this, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days, God took his seat and his clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, which was a brilliant light. The court was seated and the books were opened. Again, books open. And there before me was like one, like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all the nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. He will say later in chapter 10, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like Lightning, his eyes flamed like torches, his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. It's Daniel 7 and 10, and Daniel wrote that in 550 BC. And it's uncanny how many people who have had NDEs see this same man of light, they hear this same kind of voice that this, these prophets wrote about, and yet all of these prophets wrote about descriptions before Jesus was ever born. Then, when Jesus did walk the earth, he had disciples, and then he ascended, and some, a couple of those disciples got glimpses into heaven the same way. And Paul and John also describe him in terms like this, in terms of light. This being of light and love that people are seeing is Jesus. And he's the highlight of heaven. Now, while we're talking about descriptions of Jesus, because you're from the Bible Belt, you have this idea of what Jesus looks like, right? Um, Because a lot of us have grown up in churches where his picture hangs, um, uh, this is probably what we're familiar with. Uh, I want to put that on the screen. And this is what I like to call Jesus' senior picture, uh, because... He really wrestled that day with uh, what to wear, but he, he, you know, the white robes won out, which is appropriate, right? Um, we, we think this is what he looks like, and yet we get these descriptions from Scripture, from indie ears that, oh my goodness. <laughs> Dr. Mary Neal, who was dead 30 minutes when her kayak got pinned under a waterfall, describes this Jesus that she knew was holding her as she drowned. I want you to listen to how she describes this Jesus. I went over a waterfall that had a tremendous volume and a lot of current. And as my boat rocketed down, the front end became stuck or pinned in the rocks underwater. And the boat and I were immediately and completely submerged under about eight or 10 feet of water. Mm. And I very quickly knew that I was likely going to die. And at that point, I completely surrendered the outcome to God's will. And the moment I asked that God's will be done, I was immediately uh, and very physically held 
by Christ and reassured that everything would be fine. How, regardless. Did, you, how did you know it was Jesus holding you? It's an absolute pure knowledge. It would be as though I saw my husband in the grocery store and I knew it was my husband. I don't have to ask if it's my husband. Mm. I knew that it was Christ holding me and it was a very pure, absolute knowledge. And that was one of the first very profound aspects of this experience for me because I knew that I didn't deserve to be held by Christ. I certainly didn't deserve his love or his reassurance, but that's the beauty of it. None of us actually deserve God's love. Hmm. What did he look like? Everybody wants to know. Everybody asks. I know. And my answer is very clear, even though it's nonsensical. And I would say that he looked like bottomless kindness and compassion. And those are not words that make sense because those aren't words that we use visually, but that is what he looked like. It wasn't a matter of looking at someone and saying, oh, you know, you had brown hair and, right. you know, whatever. Um, he looked like bottomless kindness and compassion. And in terms of uh, his outward appearance, I would say the same thing as the other people I saw, which is a, a physicality, head, arms, legs. Uh, and again, this this filamentous robe exploding with love. But I also will say that I'm not entirely sure that that's how he always is. Bottomless kindness and compassion. Isn't that a great description of our Savior? I'm struck by something else she said, that even though I was held and being reassured by Christ, I got the feeling I didn't deserve that. But he did it anyway. And that pushes us to number two, that God is personal. Jesus is personal. What most NDEs say and what the scripture proclaim very loudly is that God is a person. God is not some impersonal force, some impersonal consciousness. NDEers and scripture describe a personal being who knows us personally like no other and yet loves us unconditionally. And we see this in every story when we read it, when we read of Jesus. When he came to be on the earth, he was this way towards people. Ibn Alexander, who had his own experience, said this. One of the biggest mistakes people make when they think about God is to imagine God as impersonal. He said, yes, God is behind the numbers, the perfection of the universe, but God is even more human than you and I are. Think about that. He understands and sympathizes with our human situation more profoundly and more personally than we can even imagine. The thing is, that's what Scripture has told us for 2,000 years. The writer of Hebrews says it three different times in three different ways. Uh, In verse uh, 14 of chapter 2, he says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. Later in that same chapter, it was necessary for him, Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, like his brothers and sisters. He himself has suffered like we've suffered, and he's able to help us. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Jesus understands our weaknesses because he faced all the same testings we do. He is personal. He loves each one of us. He knows each one of us better than we know ourselves, and he still loves us. Us. One of my big takeaways, personally, from this series is 
just although they can't explain how, something seems to click for people who have had experiences like this, and they understand how Jesus can know them personally and spend time with them personally and love them in a best friend kind of way while also doing that for every other person ever created at the exact same time. That's unbelievable. How many other people have had issue with that? Like, how does that work, right? That's, that's, that's my thought. I, I don't know how that works. And they say, I don't know how it works either, but it does. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because when he left this earth, he, le- he left us with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lives in each one of us. And Jesus can be present. God can be present for each one of us at the very same time, in the very same way, to the depth that we allow that relationship to go. Why would we expect anything different? In heaven, he is personal, and all he wants is you and a loving relationship with you. Number three, he is relational. Relational. God uh, showed us how much he loved the world, and Jesus said it this way in John three sixteen. I want you to read it with me because we all know it. Um, read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God has made a way for every one of us to be saved and to know him. Even people who deny him. Even people who have cursed his name. I'm going to introduce you today to a guy named Howard Storm. And Howard Storm was an atheist professor. He, was an, uh, he is an artist. He was an award-winning artist at that time. He is on a trip to Paris with some of his students Uh, visiting uh, all the art around Paris, when he suddenly has a rupture of the small stomach. And it's a condition that unless there is surgery within hours, uh, it spells immediate death. And so he's taken to a French hospital, but it is the weekend. There are no doctors available, let alone a surgeon. They kind of leave him till Monday, right? He's left in a room with no medical treatment. His wife there is there. He, he realizes he just has hours to live. And because he's an atheist, he, he gets to the end and he, he gives up and he says, I'm going to tell my wife goodbye and I fully expect that that will be my last conscious thought and it will just go black. And so that's what he did. But it didn't go black. He then found himself beside his bed, and he feels more alive than ever. The pain is gone. He feels incredible. He tries talking to his wife, who is on the other side of the bed, sobbing because her husband has just died, but she can't hear him. He can't communicate with her. He tried to communicate with somebody else in the room, another man, and they can't, he can't hear him either, and he sees himself in the hospital bed and thinks, That looks like me, but it can't be me because I'm me. And then some people call to him from the hallway in very sugary, sweet voices. Howard, we've been waiting for you. And he says, oh, that's good. I'm, I'm assuming you're from the hospital. I need surgery. I'm glad you're here. I need surgery. Yes, Howard, we know all about you. Follow us. I want you to listen to what happened next. I left the room and went into the hallway where they were, and they walked me and walked me. They encircled me um, and made sure that they directed me. And 
the journey went on and on and on and it went it seemed like hours days on and on and on and as we went which is kind of confusing but time wasn't really the same there it's very weird but there was no time everything there was no past print present or future everything was just in this big now that's too weird to get into um and Eventually, I realized that we were going into complete darkness. It had been so gradual that it took a while for me to figure this out that, you know, I can't see anything anymore. And the other thing was that the people who had started off with these kind of sweet voices were now like, move it, keep going, don't ask questions, shut up, move, you know. And I'm like, all right, I'm done. I want, I so, want out of here. So this is, I mean, this is really eerie but i think really important is in essence you had the same experience initially as everybody you felt great you were more alive than ever and you have this really nice welcoming committee right just didn't turn out that way yeah um next time i'm looking for jesus <laughs> <laughs> well keep going yeah talk about it. you know he did say he would come and take us to where he is you know um and I'm believing that. Mm. And anyways, uh, I said, I'm not going with you any further. And they said, oh, yes, you are. You've got further to go. So I am not um, the world's leading authority on what happens in the netherworld, in the underworld, in the hellish shield pit, the abyss, the valley of the shadow death. But I've been there. How many people can say that? Uh, you know? <laughs> well, do you think that yeah. is what Jesus was talking about when he said the outer darkness? Jesus talks about... Actually, Jesus never used the word hell. He talks about being cast into the outer darkness, his weeping and gnashing teeth. And he talks about Gehenna, Gehenna which was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Mm. And this uh, fit the bill on both accounts. Perfectly. So what, I mean, what happened that radically changed your life? When I refused to go with them any further and they wanted me to go deeper into us, we fought and this uh, battle went on and on and on until eventually there was nothing physically, emotionally left of me to resist anymore. I was all, I was strewn about. I was eviscerated. I was... um, um, total pain, total humiliation, total violation, and stuff that um, I have never talked about and I have no intention of ever talking about because they're, they're really bad at what they do. And it was, I was about to say good at what they do, but there's nothing good about what they do. I mean, they're very sadistic. And uh, I called, uh, I remembered in this place of complete which is the most profound about that place. But it's, it's hard to describe unless if, if any of you, you've been there in a place of complete hopelessness. Um, in that place, my memory remembered my childhood and, you know, this um, childlike, simple trust and belief in a guy by the name of Jesus and I, I had nothing except that little memory. And I remembered 
believing that and feeling that, and I, and I, and I went for it. You wrote in your book that you just remembered three lines of a song. Jesus loves me, la, la, la. That was it. Some woman gave up her Sunday morning to teach Sunday school. And I don't remember her, but when I go to heaven, I'm going I'm to kiss her hands and thank her. And I never gave that gift to my kids. I raised my kids as atheists. And they bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I've got to suffer with that for the rest of my life. Maybe not. Maybe We're going to pray not. Yeah. We're going to pray. When I felt that Jesus loves me, I called out in that darkness, Jesus, please save me. I didn't mean to sound like a Baptist, but I did. (laughs) And he came. You said you said you saw a pinpoint of light. Yeah, I saw. Of, I saw this kept like a little the... star, and it got so bright over me that it was like it wasn't scary, but it was like whoa, whoa! This light is like too bright. It's you know, it's like, am I going to be consumed in this light? And when the light came over me, not only did I see how really horrendously disemboweled and disgusting and putrid I was, but hands and arms came out of the light reached down touched me and all that gore dissolved away and I was intact and whole again and much more significantly was when those hands touched me I was filled with a love beyond any experience of love that I've ever had and I'd like to add that all this I live for is that love. The experience of the love, which I am able at times to re-experience to some degree, which I experience from other people, and it's one of the reasons I'm kind of addicted to church. <laughs> you know, because we, we do that love bomb thing in church, or we certainly strive for it, and, and, and it does work at times. Um, We struggle, but we sometimes get close. Yeah, and I have a 100% certain expectation that me and my buddy, my best friend, my Savior, my King, my Lord, my Jesus, um, we're going to be doing this again, and it is going to be the great getting up, hallelujah, day of my life. You know? That's so awesome. Absolutely the best. And you said, so he took you out of there. Yeah. And as we're rapidly going away from darkness into a world of magnificent light, which is like, oh my, you know, (laughs) I've been the dope of the universe because we're going to where God is. This is God's house now we're going to. And you can see it far off. off And you're going there. And I thought to myself, he's made a terrible mistake. I'm filth, and I belong back down there. And we stopped our progress towards what I like to f- refer to as home, because that's where we all belong. Mm. It's our, our real home. This is not home. Big mistake, thinking this is home. Mm. This is just a temporary experience. And he spoke, and he said, 
we don't make mistakes. You do belong here. Surely most of us have thought the same at one point or another. I'm not sure if I belong here. It's not hard to see why this Jesus is the highlight of heaven because for those of us who say, I don't deserve heaven, Jesus says, yes, you do. We don't make mistakes. The woman who was thrown into the circle of angry men in John chapter 8, she was caught in adultery. Her sin was laid bare in front of everyone, including Jesus, and she knew that she didn't belong there. She knew that she deserved death. She knew that she had made the ultimate mistake. But Jesus doesn't make mistakes. And he loved her. He dealt with her accusers. And are you getting why Jesus is the highlight of heaven? It's because he solves the unsolvable problem that we all have. We all want to be loved completely to the core. But the more people seem to know us, the more we open ourselves up, the the more ugly people find and the less likely people are to love us. And so the more people know us, the less they love us. And that's the problem. It's unsolvable. We can never be be both known to the core and also unconditionally loved, even though that's what we're all after. But in this person, Jesus Christ, we can be. We are both known completely and loved anyway. How does he do that? How does he know the depth of our sin and yet look past it? And the answer is in the rocks of John chapter 8. He said to the people who threw her down in the middle, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they left because they realized they were all sinful people. And he says to the woman, have they all gone? All the sinners left. And ironically, the only person that is left with this woman is the one who is without sin, Jesus himself. Because Jesus, what he knew that day that nobody else do is that rocks have to be thrown at someone. You don't get away with not throwing rocks. Sin demands a payment. There has to be a penalty that pays. Adultery costs something. It can't be swept under the rug and ignored. It has to be dealt with. And that, Je- that day Jesus knew that a stone absolutely had to be thrown and there was only one who could throw it and it was him and he did, but he just threw it at himself instead of at her. And he became the solution to the woman's adultery. And he became the solution to my selfishness. And he became the solution to your anger issues. And in saying to the woman, I don't condemn you, what he was really saying is, I don't condemn you. You don't owe for your sin because I'm going to pay for it. Jesus was inviting the rocks to be thrown at him and the cross was the result and he became the sacrifice for us on the cross so that we might go free without condemnation. He knows us completely. Every thought, every action, every motive, every bad thing. Howard Storm, the very next line, he, uh, uh, you ought to watch the rest of the stage interview and also the uh, uh, full hour-long interview. We'll send those out by email this week. You, you ought to watch those. The very next line he says is, Jesus, how did you know what I was thinking? Because he didn't say, he didn't say this. How did you know what I was thinking? And Jesus said, 
I know everything you've ever thought. Now, if Jesus said that to you, what would your response be? Oh, no, I'm in trouble. Right? Even so, he still loves us completely because the sin debt has been canceled on the cross. He is the highlight of heaven because he is the only reason we can be there at all. Let me say that one more time. Jesus is the highlight of heaven because he is the only reason that we can be there at all. Peter will write in his, one of his letters that by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' scars remain even in heaven. Maybe that's why he always has bare feet. And his scars remain because ours are forever removed. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this light of the world that you've given us. We thank you for the way you love us enough that Jesus would come and die for us. And would you help us to rest in that love? Would, it, would you help us to always question ourselves, always ask ourselves, where am I looking for love right now? Am I looking in my awards, in my achievements? In, am I looking to some other person? This need for love is so strong in us that sometimes we do very dumb things to try to find it in the wrong places. Would you help us to understand that we will never know true love until we know the one who is true love? The one who came into the world so that whosoever's could have life and not death. And Father, we thank you for knowing us to the core and loving us still. And we thank you that it's the cross that makes that possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to stand. So here's the deal. Howard Storm found himself in utter darkness. And he had just enough faith to cry out. And Jesus saved him. You do not find yourself there right now. Maybe metaphorically you do. But you're not there. You're in a much better place to be able to cry out to Jesus. And this is what he requires of you. Would you have faith? Faith that would result in confession and repentance. And then would you be baptized? And would you begin to follow after me so that you can escape that darkness? That's what he puts in front of you. He put something else in front of Howard Storm. That's not you. He put the scripture in front of you. Would you respond? Would you come? Would you accept the life that he has won for you?